0: Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson. I'm in conversation with Professor Annan Menon. Anand Menon is, is Director of the UK in a Changing Europe Project. Anand, I like this podcast to be about, obviously, the Brexit talks, but maybe as much from the UK side as the EU side. It's very easy for people like me in the, in the, the Euro bubble to maybe think that the EU side has all the best answers and maybe the UK has not. So this may be an opportunity for us to kind of uh, test some of these theses. So, as you know, we're recording this a few days before the next round of the Brexit talks, uh, which has seemed to be particularly crucial, the last round before uh, joint assessment is made by E27 the UK about the state of progress. So it is rather important, and people are already maybe prematurely talking about uh, uh, stalemate and paralysis and and no progress being made so let's let's kick off first before the brexit talks proper with a, a brief comment if you wouldn't mind on the state of play in the joint committee uh, dis- discussion the implementation of the withdrawal agreement uh, especially with, with regards to the northern ireland protocol is progress being made there
1: well the government as you know uh, put out a command paper poll last week and I haven't seen an EU response to that yet, but it does seem to me that progress is being made. I mean, small steps. The British government has formally acknowledged the need for checks uh, between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. That is considerable progress from what the Prime Minister has been insisting since before the election last year. Uh, And the evidence is that the government is intending to implement, the potential wrinkle is, it's intending to implement based on its own reading of what the protocol says and judging from the command paper and what i've heard from brussels the british version of what the protocol means and the eu version are going to be slightly different so small steps things are happening it'll be wrong to simply say oh nothing at all is going on but you know it's it's not going to be easy and there will be fights along the way
0: because irrespective of what happens in the Brexit talks proper, and assume they um, will go on till the end of the year, if there's a failure and we end up with a no-deal Brexit, the Northern Ireland Protocol still has to be implemented, correct? Even a indeed. Party, and, no indeed deal. There is
1: a, and, and of course, this is one of the interesting issues, and it, it, I mean, it's interesting in terms of implementation and politically here, is the harder the Brexit, the harder the border. Right. Uh, that is to say, you know, the border is less hard if the UK and the EU come to a deal on goods. So if we manage to scrap quotas and end tariffs on goods, then that makes the good relationship between GB and NI slightly easier uh, because of the th- the danger of things going into the EU market. If there's no deal at all, that border has to be a pretty hard one in the Irish Sea. and. One of the interesting things last week when Michael Gove unveiled uh, the government paper was I detected amongst some of the more hardline Brexiters a bit of a sense that, hang on a sec, This isn't what we were told. What do you mean checks? This feels like a border to me. We said that, uh, and, you know, there was a very interesting statement by uh, Steve Baker over the weekend in connection with the whole Dominic Cummings affair, which is that, you know, Michael Gove and Dominic Cummings had told us we can sign the withdrawal agreement because we can just change it later. So, you know, in in a sense, the more the Brexiters get the kind of Brexit they want, the less they're going to get the GBNI relationship they seem to want.
0: Right. Okay. Well, we haven't got time to talk about everything in this podcast, uh, uh, but let's start briefly with the the, the, the so-called governance issues, a structured negotiation. This idea that the, the the EU wants a single treaty with lots of layers of supervision attached to that, whereas the um, the UK wants a number of different sort of sector-based treaties. Um, and so far, there's no meeting of minds. You see, some any uh, pros attempts to bring progress on that front to have some kind of agreement on the governance issues at least
1: not as yet no because i think the british government is sticking to its guns which say look all this bloody institutional nonsense that the europeans insist on we don't need it for stuff like foreign affairs we don't need it for things outside of the sort of narrow ambit of the things we're trying to negotiate on trade so let's get that out of the way and do separate side agreements for a lot of other things now of course the european union doesn't like this idea, doesn't like it at all. Uh, You you know, both sides have acted true to form, haven't they? The European Union gave us a picture, which was a picture of a house to ensure that, you know, we're all clear about the single institutional structure. The British government gave us a document. And one of the interesting things about the UK uh, negotiating document was they restarted the paragraph numberings after the trade deal to make it clear that all the rest is completely separate institutionally. Uh, and there is no sign of uh, reconciliation on these points at the moment. And of course, beyond the, the, the sort of cosmetic angle here is the issue at the heart of Brexit, which is the relationship the UK has with the EU and its institutions. And this government wants that relationship to be a distant one.
0: Right. Well, that's an accusation, isn't it? That both sides seem to be levelling at each other. Uh, this thing about a low level of ambition, I think. think in so many words, David Frost, UK negotiator, said that about his counterpart, barnier Michel Barnier. And Michel Barnier has kind of retorted back to him. Uh, where, where is the ambition on each side in terms of uh, the future substance of the deal?
1: Well, no, indeed. We, I think both sides have very high ambitions about a deal that suits their purposes. <laughs> right. Uh, so... Uh, But I mean, one of the things you hear about the British government quite often still that they're unwilling to confront the trade-offs inherent in Brexit, I don't think is true anymore. I think this government has said loud and clear that, you know, there will be friction under the sort of Brexit we want. If there's an economic cost to our insistence on taking back control of our laws, so be it. Now, We can quibble about what they say about the scale of those economic costs or how long they'll last because I still think they're misreading or deliberately misunderstanding the economic forecasts. But I think they've recognised what Theresa May for so long simply refused to say out loud. There are trade-offs in Brexit.
0: Well, they're saying it now maybe because not because they just maybe just realised it now, but because they think now is a kind of way to, to bit by bit, as a, almost like a drip feed, uh, come clean with the, with the rest of the world what a Brexit uh, actually means in practice. Yeah, and I think also because, I mean, and again, you've got to be careful
1: here. I think this is certainly true of the period between the election and the start of the pandemic being a serious issue in the United Kingdom. It was an era of the almost complete triumph of politics over economics. Uh, It was a kind of, this is what Britain wants to be. Britain wants to be free. There might be economic costs in the short term. Even David Frost said, yep, there's going to be some churn in the short term. It's a price worth paying. It's a price worth paying both in its own right for the political gains we would have and because actually the economics will sort themselves out. Now, I'm not so confident about the second part of that. Now whether or not the whole pandemic changes those calculations, or changes the calculation in the mind of Leave voters, we've yet to see. But if we run into a situation where we have very high and persistent unemployment uh, and it is shown that actually a Brexit at the end of the year has made those problems worse, I wonder whether people will be quite as willing to prioritise the politics over the economics. By then of course it'll be too late.
0: Will it be too late? But also, would people be able to realise or make the distinction between uh, a pandemic-induced economic hit and a Brexit-induced economic hit? Maybe the two could be conflated uh, in people's minds.
1: I think there's a, there is a danger of that. Yes, I think. But however, there are certain things we need to be clear about. One of which is we still hope that the the the, the, the large-scale economic impact of the pandemic is relatively short-term. Not in terms of Borrowing levels and things like that, but in terms of unemployment in terms of economic activity and things like that There is still a hope that we can we can aspire at least to a v-shaped recovery when it comes to things like that Whereas brexit will drag on forever. So brexit will be a sort of dead anchor for a long time Uh, So insofar as our economy recovers less quickly than other European economies, there might be uh, a Brexit effect there and the second thing is Brexit affects the economy differently. So one of, the, one of the startling things for me of the COVID crisis has been the fact that uh, you can walk into a supermarket and it is well stocked. Everything's there. The food supply chains are working pretty well. But they're, of course, precisely the areas where the imposition of checks and the impositions of tariffs are going to cause some issues when Brexit happens. So Brexit will lead to disruptions that we have been mercifully, mercifully free from during the pandemic.
0: But will they be... Uh relatively speaking, short-term disruptions or, or longer-term disruptions?
1: Well, that is very hard to say. You'd like to say relatively short-term. You'd like to say that insofar as the government hasn't got the bandwidth at the moment to think about putting the infrastructure in place, uh, getting the people in place to make these uh, customers points work, as soon as, as soon as there is a little bit of friction at those borders, as soon as the queues build up, they'll put some resource into that. But I don't know how long that disruption will be. I'm certainly thinking months rather than days.
0: Right. Well, I did say the outcome. I want very much to try to make this a podcast, uh, not, not exclusively, but to a large extent about the UK side and to what extent it is, has, uh, has good grounds for making the point it's making and where its irritation and frustration with E27 is, by the same token, justified. So specifically in the area on uh, the very contentious area of the level playing field that everybody seems to be talking about where there seems to be a, a real impasse, Can you give me your take on whether you think that the UK is on is on strong ground here, and its and its irritation, frustration with the U twenty seven is indeed justified? Uh,
1: Well, firstly, I think on most of the LPF stuff, there is a deal to be done around the broad sort of notion of non regression. That is to say, leaving aside state aid, and I'll come back to state aid in a minute. I think that an agreement can be found that satisfies both sides if both sides genuinely want that kind of agreement. And we can come back to talk about whether the UK side genuinely wants an agreement, because it's not clear that they necessarily do. State aid is the one area where I think there is a problem, because the EU formulation is quite strong in terms of the role of the European Court of Justice, in terms of abiding by the letter of EU law. On the one hand, yes, I do think the UK government have a case in the sense that the, the EU ask is uh, a big ask, and it's not necessary in the sense that you can find ways of responding via a trade deal short of you being under our law to all intents and purposes. That is to say, if, you've been, if we think you're acting unfairly, we will take the following measures. So there are ways of, there are other ways of doing it. The second sort of COVID-related argument, which makes which which makes me wonder about the British position, is. I mean, to all intents and purposes, EU state aid law doesn't seem to exist anymore, uh, and one wonders— <laughs> one, yeah, one wonders— going forward will not be restored to full health.
0: Right, but I mean, the UK would say it, and with some reason. To be fair, that when it comes to regulation, uh, whether it's uh, labour standards or environment or, or whatever, just simple product regu- uh, regulation, they are ahead of the game. They—that's the story. That's maybe the UK itself has failed to get out more uh, more convincingly more effectively but this idea that there's going to be some kind of singapore on terms installed the day after we we totally leave the eu is a is a total uh, fabrication
1: well, there, I think the the UK is on far less solid ground, because the point for the European Union isn't where we are now, it's where we might go in the future. Right. And of course, famously, a defining feature of our political system is that today's parliament can't bind tomorrow's parliament. So if you imagine, I don't know, let's see how how wild and wacky we can be. You imagine a scenario where the Dominic Cummings affair brings down this government, uh, and you end up with a new Conservative Prime Minister. Let me just say in lights. I'm not saying this is going to happen I'm giving it as an example. Mm. We end up with a new Conservative government under the sort of tender tutelage of Steve Baker Then I think the regulatory situation of the United Kingdom will change pretty fast Okay, uh, and this Parliament can't prevent that Parliament from doing it.
0: Yeah. so
1: uh, You know, what the EU is worried about is the future, not the present. And, you know, here there's a wonderful irony, isn't there, is that a lot of the British politicians, and, you know, we shouldn't forget how many of them are the same politicians who have spent the last 20, 25 years railing about overregulation from Brussels, uh, writing studies saying if we could cut these regulations, we'd save billions, are the same people who are now saying it's outrageous that Brussels thinks we're going to cut
0: regulations.
1: (laughs) Well, they think it because it's what you've said for the last three decades.
0: Yeah. And there's been also the justification, maybe for, for for Brexit in the eyes of many uh, proponents of Brexit, right? Red, Brussels red yeah. tape has to be uh, abandoned. Okay, but I, I could I could sense, to be fair, government's frustration. Could they say, okay, you say it's about the future, not the, the the current situation? But in many areas, as you know, where the UK, to be fair, and I'm trying very hard here, to be fair, is ahead of its EU partners.
1: Yeah, but I still think that misses the misses the point of the debate, which is. Can you tell us in 10 years' time what your regulation will be? No. Well, in that case, we need some sort of guarantee that is a legal guarantee, not simply a political one from a government that might not be in power. I mean, that being said, you know... You can. The, the, the substance of the argument is that, you know, a country that is free to regulate its own affairs can do so in a way that is more tailored to its own conditions. I have little doubt that if, if the energy and the wit is, 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 is invested, we can end up with an agricultural policy that is more efficient and more environmentally friendly than the common agricultural policy. Uh, so there is scope to improve on EU regulation. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I suppose two questions come from that. One, whether we will do it better because we're so overburdened with stuff at the moment, I wonder whether we have the time and space to regulate well. Uh, and secondly, whether ultimately the gains from that outweigh the losses from being outside Single Market and Customs Union, which I doubt.
0: But have there been any, uh, historically, any serious signed indications by the, by the UK government, no matter who's been in Downing Street, of uh, a desire to, to deregulate big time uh, on the back of uh, the UK withdrawal from the EU?
1: Well, I mean, a lot of the Conservative politicians who are in power now have said so, both in government and in opposition, when they weren't free to do so. Uh, In a a sense, their bluff is now being called, uh, show us those regulations. Uh, Even now, people who are arguing against an extension of the transition, one of their arguments is, we can then regulate as we see fit. They're, They're very, very slow to come forward with specific examples of what we might do. Right. Uh, that will make a material difference to the state of the British economy.
0: Well, what about the point that the other people in the UK uh, government are making that if we're basically going for a, a free trade agreement, FTA, um, other FTAs the EU has entered into with other, other countries like Canada, Canada is often quoted as you know, um, uh, much more relaxed when it comes to LPF uh, elements than, than you are trying, you, the EU, are trying to impose on the UK. Is that a fair argument? Uh, you, to an extent,
1: uh, I mean I, my, my, my bottom line on this is I think ultimately the argument here is a political argument and it's a political argument about being able to regulate for yourselves. I think my sense about the economic add-ons that you hear is that they're just that, they're economic add-ons to try and sweeten the pill of a essentially political case. So I, you know, I will struggle to sit here and make the economic case for us being able to regulate ourselves as leading to better economic outcomes than the status quo. With Canada, I think, I think a couple of things. I think, one, that the British government is being disingenuous in suggesting that we want to deal like Canada because actually we want far, far more than Canada has. We need to talk about freight. We need to talk about the volumes of trade that crosses the border, which is, you know, of a different order of magnitude to that between Canada and the European Union. So actually we need far more than Canada needs. So this notion that we only want Canada, I think, is, is, is slightly deceptive. And I think, you know, one of the things about uh, international trade negotiations, like most forms of international relations, is that ultimately they come down to power. Mm. they're not about being nice. They're not about treating you as nicely as you treated them. They're about power. They're about saying, actually, in my interest, I want to do X. And that should not have come as a surprise to us.
0: But then on the, the general issue of, of access, UK access to the EU internal market, um, the UK, to again, to be fair, uh, does appreciate, thank goodness, that it has to conform with EU regulation in order to export and sell in the EU single market. That's not, a, that's not up for discussion. They do accept that. Maybe some people in the commentary, at the media, do not appreciate that themselves, but I think the government and the negotiators do, surely.
1: Yeah, maybe. Though obviously there are exceptions to that rule. Northern Ireland, for instance. You don't have to be all in. Uh, there are ways. I mean, but it is quite within. You know, one of the big debates in this country is did the European Union cave to Boris Johnson last October? Uh, and one of the things that I don't think has been well enough explained in this country is, no, the EU reverted back to uh, an initial position that member states were far more comfortable in than they were in the, with, with Theresa May's uh, all-UK backstop. That made people very uncomfortable because a large competitor on their doorstep was being given unparalleled access to the customs union without being bound by the rules of the single market. Uh, that made people uncomfortable doing it for Northern Ireland is far easier because Northern Ireland, of course, is a far, far smaller economy. Yeah. So, you know, I think it, it, in this country, we, we slightly misunderstood the debate. That being said, I think there were probably ways of being flexible on a sector-by-sector basis that the EU hasn't particularly explored. I think this, this mantra of the indivisibility of the single market seems to be in a very recent uh, invention uh, and it's not borne out by the legal development of the single market in any way, shape or form. I think there has been a failure of imagination on both sides, truth be told. Uh, what frustrates me about this, particularly in the current context of a world in which we are less and less certain about the intentions or actions of the Chinese, where actually fewer and fewer people can really put faith in the U.S. under Donald Trump, uh, that, that we haven't sat down until, and started from the point that, look, we need to find ways of working together constructively within the constraints that each of our legal systems and our politics imposes. But let's try and set some ambitious objectives and find ways from getting, of getting to them rather than saying, these are my red lines. These are our legal red lines. Oops, we can't agree on anything. It just struck me that we, both sides approach the, deal, the, the negotiations in a rather upside down way.
0: Well, a quick then, we can't have this kind of discussion without mentioning fish, even though you and I maybe aren't the world's expert on fish, but, uh, and it is a, a relatively small proportion of uh, local economies, but a very important, uh, well, maybe a large proportion of local economies, but a small proportion of global economies. But how big a, a sticking point will the fisheries dossier be in the Brexit talks, in your view? Will a, will a deal be found, or is it going to be the, the kind of tail wagging the dog and upend the, the, the negotiations?
1: I always thought a deal could be found and the, the space for a deal lay in having, you know, I always thought cynically that if the British government or the British parliament could have a symbolic annual vote on allowing access, uh, that could be dressed up as having taken back control and deciding as a sovereign parliament that actually, yes, we're going to allow the EU to fish our waters in return for the Scottish fishermen being allowed to sell their, their, their shellfish in the European Union. I mean, I thought that the makings of a deal were there. I mean, at the moment... The tone implies that neither side is willing to give ground at all. Uh, so uh, that was a very, very long-winded way of saying, I really don't know. I think it shouldn't be possible, but I'm far from certain it will be.
0: All right. And a final part then. It's a three-part crystal ball um, question. Oh, so, so next week, the next round of negotiation, how do you think they will go? Question one. Question two: When the high-level conference takes place later in the month, when the two sides assess progress to date, uh, what conclusions will they draw? And part three, <laughs> you're writing this down. I'm very impressed. And part three: uh, What likelihood do you think there will be if there is or will be for a an extension or a transition beyond the end of this year?
1: Okay, I'm writing it down simply because my memory's so bad. Now the next thing we find out is that my handwriting's so bad that I can't even <laughs> read what have written. So the whole thing's a nightmare. What uh, will happen, what'll happen next week in the, in the next round? <laughs> the next round, I think the next round will look, feel, and sound pretty much like this round. Uh, I don't see any great chance of a substantive breakthrough. I don't think either side is ready to start thinking in terms of concessions. I'm not sure either side is going to, but I think the next round will be bad-tempered. It will be a lot of posturing again. Uh, and you, know, you might get some nibbling progress around the edges. The, the EU might respond relatively positively to the command document on the Northern Ireland Protocol, but I don't see any massive breakthroughs. Uh, my sense about the, uh, the June date is because I, everything in this country I view through the lens of politics, I don't think it suits the government for the talks to break down in June. I think it suits the government if the talks are going to break down, that they break down in the autumn. Right. The, closer, the closer to exit that the talks break down, the more that sense of anger will carry us through the initial disruption. I think that will be the calculation.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, getting all worked up with the EU and walking from the table in June serves very little purpose uh, in a political sense. So I think there will be some mumblings and some grumblings on our side, but I suspect the talks will continue. I do not think there is any prospect at the moment of an extension to the transition phase. I don't see politically how the government would do that. Uh, I think, I mean, for a variety of political... I mean, it's interesting, the politics, because on the one hand, there's been a series of polls that indicate at least a plurality in favour of extending in public opinion, including, I think, a plurality of levers, though I might be wrong on that. Uh, But secondly, the government faces... You know, there's growing dissension in the House of Commons at the moment on the Conservative backbenchers. Part of that is about Dominic Cummings. Part of that is about lockdown. There's uh, some increasingly vociferous voices saying this lockdown was a bad idea; it should be lifted as soon as possible. We need to prioritise the economy. One of the interesting things about that group is they overlap very strongly with the group of people who don't want to extend transition. <laughs> Steve Baker and Owen Paterson and Duncan yeah. Smith. It's not beyond the realms of possibility then that the government will give them the non-extension of transition in return for a little bit of peace and quiet over lockdown. But actually, it's a way of managing. I mean. You know, on one level it's absurd. On on another level, it's perfectly rational politics.
0: So the the impact of the the pandemic and the economic hit doesn't seem to play much into the into the thinking of the government on this. Then,
1: well, it has, but insofar as it has, I think it has reinforced thinking that this is a good time to do this. I mean, insofar as you know, what the pandemic has done is make government think one, uh, you know. W- w- given the scale of the economic crisis caused by pandemic, what difference does a Brexit make? Mm-hmm. Two, if companies are having to adapt to a completely new world with far less international trade, with disrupted supply chains anyway, they might as well do the Brexit stuff at the same time. You know, why don't we package the whole thing up? I mean, mm-hmm. there are some heroic assumptions there about future trading arrangements. If global trade recovers, that's not a, lo- a logical argument. Uh, but, but the government seems to think that actually the pandemic, insofar as it impacts on the extension debate, has made the case for non-extending
0: stronger. Okay, well, we have to leave it there. Alan Menor, thank you very much for your time.
1: Pleasure as always, Paul. Thank you.